0: I'm George Mason, host of Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. My guest is Gordon Keith, radio personality and writer in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And he'll be talking about his experiences of grief and the loss of his parents and the ways he has found meaning through it. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm joined today by Gordon Keith, who is a local radio personality that many of you know through The Ticket, The Morning Show. Um, 24 years at The Ticket and 22 with The Morning Show and also many of you might know him through his writings in the Dallas Morning News. Uh, I've known him through Uh, some personal relationship and conversation we've had uh, occasionally through the years, uh, but also because we uh, grew up in Baptist life at different times, and his dad was a Baptist pastor. Uh, But, uh, Gordon, it's it's wonderful to have you on the program. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. And uh, to talk about things that uh, you and I know we both share interest in, but maybe other people don't know. They probably would expect it of me, uh, maybe not so much of you. (laughs) They probably associate uh, the church with you. Yeah, I'd say that's probably right, but uh, actually I have a little bit of sports in my background too, probably. Oh yeah, that's right. uh, Probably a little more than you do, as a matter of fact. Much more than I do, yes. You know, one time, I, I probably should tell everybody this story, I was sitting with your dad at lunch and he was helping us with a capital campaign at the time. Uh, because after he was a pastor, he helped churches raise money right. and that sort of thing. And so we were sitting there and he was talking about you and Mickey Mantle had just died. Uh-huh. And uh, I'd actually gone to Mickey Mantle's funeral because I, I grew up in New York and I was a baseball fan and as a kid. So I thought, oh, it's just down the street. I'm going to do this. Right. And it, was, it was fun. And he said, he looked at me and he said, you know, my son on sports radio, he says to me, Dad, Who's Mickey Mail? <laughs> right, <laughs> and like you know, and people wouldn't understand, but you know, maybe they would because you're sort of the funny guy on the show right. and that yeah. kind of thing. The news yeah. and the news and all. It is that. amazing that I've yeah.
1: made a career in sports radio, having right.
0: little interest in sports, and I, I
1: never intended to get in radio. I just kind of started it when I was 21, I think. I took an internship right. with the ticket right before it went on the air, yeah. and the thing just kind of kept going and kept yeah. going. I said, "Well, this is a great job," and it, right. and it really is like. A, you know, and certainly you have a ministry. I yeah. I would say that you know the ticket is like serves this function in in mm-hmm. our community. It's so strange. I mean, people will come up to you and say the most meaningful and touching things when we're doing events and, huh. and meeting listeners. You know, they'll right. they'll come up to you and say, uh, you know, I mean, some of them will have tears in their eyes, saying, "You guys have been part of my mornings and part of my life for." 20 years uh, they'll say things like my wife and I used to listen to you when she was in dialysis. Oh my goodness. And you know, they've lost someone, Uh, uh, but they bond over this. And, and, and a lot of, um, I had someone just recently, a couple weeks ago, um, sent me a a beautiful, long touching email about how I want to thank you guys because I don't know how to talk to my dad. Yeah. And, but one thing we could always talk about was you guys.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I'm such a sap, you can tell. Well,
0: so, so here's, <laughs> here's the emotion that's coming up now has to do somewhat also with your sense of this being touched by people and their being touched at sensitive moments of their lives. Right. Which is something you've been going through as well for a period of time now. We talked about your dad. But you lost your mom and dad in, in a short period of time from each other, right. Over the course of the last uh, couple of years, I guess. Yeah, they, right.
1: uh, eight months apart, they right. passed away, right. Right. and um, you know, and so the past few years of of mine, uh, my my father passed away about uh, two years ago, uh, and my mom eight months before that. So I spent you know a good chunk of my uh, time you know caring for them, right. and it was very very traumatic, you know, and I. Uh, it's like, you know, I just wish that, that after my mom passed that my dad and I had a chance to recover a little bit, but we were steeped in his own treatment sure. for, for cancer at the time, my mom also died of cancer, um, and it was just the amount of of trauma that you see that you have to go through in caring for parents uh, is is really amazing, and you know, I was always I thought it was strange how people would come up to me and say, you know, I, I really had, had, this is going to sound like I'm bragging about myself but I actually have a point here. Okay. <laughs> they say, they say, you know, I really admire you for, for taking care of your parents the way you do. You know, I don't think I could do that. And to me, quite honestly, it didn't occur to me that you could get home health care or anything <laughs> like that. I mean, it was like I it just didn't yeah. I didn't think about it. I wasn't aware right. this was an option. Right. Uh, but I took care of them, you know, and, and when you do those things for your parents, when you mm-hmm. see that that circle of life in which you mm-hmm. have to care for them uh attendant to their needs in the way that they attended to you as an infant right. uh, when you have to wash them and mm-hmm. you have to help them go to the bathroom and and all of these um hallmarks of humanity right you know uh it really you know it it affects you 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 mm-hmm. feel for them in ways and it but it gives you a sense as traumatic as it was for me to have to care for them and see them go downhill. And, and my father was a, a, a very much a superman to me. Um, larger than life, uh, incredibly intelligent man, big football player guy. To see him go down and to see him pass away, it is so foundationally shattering yeah, yeah. to a person. Uh, but I did step away from that going, you know, I did good, I did. Yeah. I did the right thing and I took care of them right. and this is the way it's supposed to be. And and right. we've we farmed out health care and death. We farmed out death in the way that we didn't nowhere right. in human history right. have we done like we've done in the past hundred years to where people <coughs> die in hospitals now
0: and right, right. and all that. And even our death rituals where we you know we now mostly have cremation or memorial services and we don't really want to be with the body and right. things of that nature. I understand there are pluses and minuses to all of those things, but there was a time when we, as a community and families, would let life stop. you know the mm-hmm. the, the funeral coach would go by in the parade of cars, and people would take their, men would take their hats off, and people would stop on the sidewalk or uh, that the church bell would ring and everyone would say, someone has died. And mm-hmm. there would be a communal sense of grieving that would take place and taking stock of life and death and the meaning of it and all of that, just in the normal course of things. And now as a pastor, I gotta tell you, you know, I, um, you know people will schedule memorial services for months after the person has died, because it's much more convenient for family to come in out of town. Right. And, you know, I, I had this trip planned, and so, you know, and I think, oh my goodness, what what is the significance of this shift that's happened?
1: Yeah, so I I, it is strange how we've, because it's so unpleasant to have to think about death and contemplate it, and we found right. these ways to kind of um, marginalize death, right. when death is the very thing that gives our lives meaning right. in some sense, because we Having are these, these, these yeah. creatures that have, we're so finite, right. and, but we have these minds. It's the old thing, you know, we have, we're, um, um, we have angel minds, but we're in a goat's body, right. you know? And, and that is the very thing that makes us distinct from every other creature. That's the thing that makes us need a relationship right. with God, is because we have a godlike mind that can project itself beyond our own death. And so when we don't see those that are close to us, die and spend the time to contemplate what death means and what do I want out of my life and how much time do I fritter away in my life doing stuff I either don't wanna do or uh, just spent life in amusement. I think really we're so distracted by amusement now to -hmm. prevent us from thinking and contemplating about harder things that are very
0: uncomfortable. So this from an entertainer, from an entertainer, right, exactly, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And there is certainly a place for entertainment, sure. uh, like um, you know, like I told you, you know, the, the going to your wife going to dialysis with you and y'all listening to something funny on the way—that's good. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but to constantly stay on our devices and never do sure. anything—it's sure. you know, David Foster Wallace said we're just going to amuse ourselves to death, and, and uh, there's something to that. You know, is that we're just. When we, when we only have a limited amount of life and we spend it all on this penalty kill right. of
0: doing a bunch of stuff that doesn't have meaning. So you, you threw yourself into caring for your parents. Right. And that was uh, a meaningful part for which you have no regrets. But then after they were gone, uh, that was a whole new phase for you. Exactly. Grief, and I'm still
1: in it. You know, yeah. I'm still in this yeah. uh, I, mean, I was just devastated and laid low by depression, and I don 't know whether that is a product of what I witnessed or a product of my own particular sensitivity right. um, but it it really you know knocked me down in a way that i 'm still trying to get up from um, in a lot of ways it's the concept of rebirth you know because yeah. you do have to rise up if you're going to live at all. Mm-hmm. And it refocused my own mind and refocused my own idea of what I want out of life. And it also reminded me of how late on the play clock I have now. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, right. I'm in my 40s, you know, I'm not young. And if I'm going to do the things I want to do, I, I need to get started at it. But it's very hard. Yeah. But when your parents die, are either of your parents still alive?
0: One. Yeah. One.
1: Yeah. Well, when you have that last one die and right. you're... Um, there's, the no on the, there's no one there's no one on the vanguard anymore right, you know right. you're the next in line to die yeah. it, it,
0: it it affected me greatly. So looking back on it I, I think you've you've written about talked about how uh, this experience has caused you to want to live more simply for instance and, mm-hmm. uh, and focused you a little more about more meaningful things that you would do uh, without having gone through that a real sense of grief. Um, Would you have been able to get to that place? In other words, sometimes the hardest things that we go through are things that we come on the other side and say, maybe I needed to go through that in order to arrive here.
1: Right, this goes back to that thing I was talking about. Uh, Our one great human superpower is is uh, ascribing meaning to things. Mm -hmm. And I know that here with my parents' death, I can do one of two things, I can either Crumble and fall and not rebuild, or mm-hmm. I know I'm going to crumble and fall. You're, you're guaranteed to have to tear down some part of yourself. Some right. part's going to get torn down when your parents die. How do you rebuild it, and what do you rebuild it, and what does it look like? Could I have come to that through some other way? Probably. I think our tragedies are the things that make us, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, my whole career, being a funny kid. Uh, was born out of pain, you know? Mm-hmm. This was because I was not handsome, I was not an athlete. Mm-hmm. My brother was that, my older brother was. When you're a younger brother, you know, you you live life in response to someone. Uh, my yeah. brother had, had declared territories, and, <laughs> and so how was I going to be special? I wanted right. to be special, right? And so I started being funny. And, you know, you have somebody who makes fun of you on the schoolyard, a bully, so painful, so traumatic. Well, I'm going to be more Mm quick-witted. So then I'm Mm -hmm. going to develop this thing of me. It's almost like our personalities are basically a response to our our suffering and our tragedies and our pain. And they're they're adaptations to that. Mm. What we are are Mm -hmm. our adaptations to suffering and the things that forged us.
0: Beautiful. Well, I I think it would be well for us to explore something about your writing experience and how uh, that both had to stop for a while for you and how uh, the prospect of doing that again is uh, still before you but is part of the redemption of this this whole uh, experience as well
2: so uh, let's explore that in just a few moments when we come back the north texas food bank is a local nonprofit focused on hunger relief Right here in North Texas, there are more than 800,000 food insecure people. That means these folks don't always know when or from where their next healthy meal may come. Each day, the North Texas Food Bank Feeding Network provides access to more than 190,000 meals for hungry children, seniors, and families. While the food bank is making great strides to meet the need for food assistance, much work remains to be done to ensure that all hungry neighbors are fed. You can get involved and ensure that hungry kids are able to access the nutrition they need to thrive. Donate food. Healthy food items like peanut butter and canned tuna are always appreciated. Donate funds. Did you know when you donate a dollar, it provides access to three meals? Donate your time. Roll up your sleeves and come volunteer with the North Texas Food Bank. Donate your voice. Tell our elected officials that the issue of hunger matters. Visit ntfb.org to get involved. Good God with George Mason salutes the vital services provided to our community by the North Texas Food Bank.
0: Thank you! Thank you.
2: Gordon, we were talking
0: about your writing as being something that sort of pulled you out of uh, one medium and put you into another. And uh, I, I got a first-hand experience of that, actually. Right, because yeah. uh, that's right, uh, you were a
1: star one of my uh, columns. Well, and
0: I appreciate you nominating me for Texan of the Year following the Ebola incident mm-hmm. uh, and all the things that took place there. But you were an award-winning writer uh, for the Dallas Morning News, and, and people really enjoyed your column. And we can talk more about what the, the meaning of that was. But going back to your grief, you needed to stop for a while. You needed to say, right. Let me just collect typewriters for a while. <laughs> right, yeah. How's that collection going, It was very... It's a collection <laughs> yeah. I need to get rid yeah, of is yeah, what uh-huh. needs to happen. Yeah. You I'm, and Tom Hanks, by the way. Both. I know, you, and he's a big
1: you, typewriter you, collector.
0: You have that going for you. Yeah. I
1: know. It's uh-huh. such a strange thing. Yeah, right. I always liked those. Uh, yeah. And it's very interesting, The the things that I like to collect... Typewriters. I got into pens. You know, nice Uh, fountain pens for a while. Uh, You know, they're all surrounding writing. You know, and I find that I do those things when I'm avoiding writing. (laughs) I always do some kind of ancillary thing related to writing. But yeah, I I stopped for a while, and you know, part of it was that uh, my my own. You know, a lot of it with writing, and I need to get back to it. And I have not fully jumped into it when my parents got sick and I was taking care of them. Uh, I found that I just didn't want to write, and I was mm-hmm. in a situation where I had a the radio job where i didn 't have to write and so I stopped doing it and In a lot of ways, I feel that was really a mistake because of all the things that i 've done and i 've done radio and and some a little bit of t v and uh but the thing that has always meant the most to me is writing mm-hmm. it's and and my writing was tended to always be kind of serious writing i've done humor columns before mm-hmm. too, but when I started the morning news stuff, it just seemed like the more thing, the more stuff I was writing about was kind of serious stuff, right. and I got so much great response from those columns. And why do you think?
0: What was I, the secret to it that that really touched I, people? I think,
1: um, I think it was vulnerability. There I think is. that that I was, mm-hmm. I would tell stories about my life that uh, you know they they're not glamorous or anything. It was just paying attention to the. An interaction, or, or something that had happened to me, and so there would kind of be about life. And right. and, and if you're if you're talking vulnerably, mm-hmm. people will listen to you. If you are up on a podium and trying to prove someone wrong, or mm-hmm. you see this in, in political right. columns and so on. Sure people continue out so easily they right. can dismiss you because you're well that's a liberal columnist well that's a conservative columnist and they don't listen to you but when you're just a person who's kind of defies label right. and you just start off talking in a way that is conversational and is mm-hmm. telling a, a story right. you get in the side door of right. someone and it's amazing to me how if you bypass the head Mm-hmm. And go for the heart, mm-hmm. you can actually talk to people. Right, right. And people will listen to what you're, you're saying, what you're writing. Preaching
0: is this way, too, I think. You know, right. it's uh, uh, it, you, can, you, you can't talk anybody into the faith, you, right. can't, you, you can't just convince them. There has to be that human connection, that sense of being moved and feeling that this is raw. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the sports writer uh, Red Smith is somebody. Apparently, asked him what what's the secret of good writing, and he says, "Well, this is pretty simple. You just open up a vein and start to write and start you to bleed. Know? Yeah, start right. to bleed. You know, <laughs> and and that's pretty much you know what I think you're talking about. Uh, we have uh, why is it that the most popular TED talk maybe ever is Brene Brown? Uh, right. Who, who talked about the secret of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and the importance of that in uh, healing uh, our human hurts and in bringing our communities together. So I think you hit on a nerve there, but it also probably says why you had to take a pause for a while.
1: Right, you know, because one of the things that was really hard about writing to me, a couple things were, one is even though, People would come up to me sometimes and go, you know, oh man, I I liked your column about this or that. You know, you 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 write so naturally, and right. I think, boy, it, does, it certainly doesn't feel <laughs> natural because I yeah I go over every word, you know, and, and everything is is balanced and measured. Things have to have rhythm and a certain kind of poetry and feel and texture to them, you know, right. and and it feels like so much heavy lifting, and and I suffer from something that I think most every writer does. Every writer is convinced that it's easy for all the other writers. Right, right, you know? exactly. And I feel like a fraud and I feel like, right. God, why is this so taxing for me sure. when everyone else seems to be able to write easily and yeah. but but I I don't write easily. This I happen to be a person who it takes me a long time to come up with eight hundred words that I like enough and and to know that I'm sharing the parts of the story that I need to share and not extraneous things and I'm picking the one detail that'll represent a hundred details, you know, because sure. as a writer, you have one of the greatest allies you have is the reader's mind, yeah. because it will populate the details of something, and they right. will talk about, man, you painted such a great scene, right. and I say, look at it again, you know, and there's, I only put two sentences there, but your mind filled this out into an entire scene based on mm-hmm. your own experience, so that's how writing can be.
0: Um, well, I go through this in preaching. People will come to me, Gordon, and say, you know, after a sermon, sometimes in the narthex sometimes days later and they'll talk to me you know here's what really meant something to me i when you said this and i'm listening to them and i'm thinking okay i don't think i said that i i don't i don't remember any way in which i could have possibly communicated that to you but that's what they took that's from what it. they took from it because, as you say, this is not a monologue. This is not just an essay being put out there into the air. It's really a communication of souls. Mm-hmm. And and we have this sense that there's actually a communicator uh, connecting us, right? Right. You know, that there is this mystery of communication, this um, uh, this mystery of life that is drawing us to each other. And, uh, you know, in our Christian experience, we call that the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and I think... Uh, You've actually talked about this as a calling for you, right? And you, you you use that word, which is sort of not so much borrowed from religious life. It's it's a, that it's is a the association. people It's an have association, with it. right? But you you think about your ministry mm-hmm. in in writing. I've heard you use that phrase. What do you mean yeah. by that? Uh, you know, I, this was a
1: realization that I came to at some point during the long run of the radio show. Was I used to think that what I did was frivolous, uh-huh. and I used to think it was just Um, fluff in Mm -hmm. life. And I always wondered when I would do something serious. And then I came to appreciate through many listener interactions that what we did on the radio show was a ministry. Mm -hmm. And that opened my idea up to, well, kind of all the work we do is our ministry in some sense. you know, And it means something to people. And then when I started writing the column, uh, I started seeing the impact that it was having on people and the impact it was having on me in conversation with those people mm-hmm. and I realized, you know, this this is absolutely every bit of, as much of a ministry as I'm not saying as in uh, in well executed. we have all thing, done but, it. But, but we're, yeah, but, we're all involved you know, in it's it. It's every much as ministry as my father's ministry was, right. as much as yours is. Right. This is my particular kind. It's and you not have the your same own kind. congregation in a sense. Exactly. Right. And um And that became so meaningful to me, you know, because, and I do feel it's my calling. Mm -hmm. And the spiritual tumult that I experience even today when I'm not actively writing is because I'm not answering my calling and Mm -hmm. I know that and Uh that eats at me. And I think most people in the world, if they would start thinking along those lines Mm -hmm. of, you know, what is my calling and why aren't I doing it if I'm not, and look at the ways that it eats at you that you're not doing what you feel you should be doing. Right. Each person has something that they should be doing. Right. This is a way of thinking, right? In religious terms, we right. do talk about, you know, God has a purpose for us and a calling. Mm-hmm. Um, but even secular people, if they would just, you can even leave God out of here you if you're comfort- uncomfortable with the term. Mm-hmm. Think of it that way and you would realize how much better you would feel right. if you, found out what your calling was, and walked that way. Yeah, It's amazing how many things get settled when you're doing the thing you're supposed to be doing.
0: Sounds like you're getting close again.
1: I, yeah, I am, yeah, you know, I can, I, every I interaction it. like this pushes yeah, and nudges me yeah. a little bit closer. Right, uh, right. But, you well, know, I think
0: there's an awful lot of people ready to read you again and uh, eager for that. And, and uh, it, because it, it's not just because another writer has made a contribution, but because of the way you've done that and uh, the the ministry it is to people. So thank you for it.
1: Oh man, yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to do it. You know, yeah, right. it's, it's one of these win-wins that I wonder why I don't avail myself of it when it, if it helps other people and helps me, why am I not doing it? And, right. it, and part of it is, Uh, this idea of sin, and once again, you can understand it religiously or understand Uh it otherwise, but it's that, you know, I obviously don't feel worthy enough to, for salvation. Uh And uh, when I don't like myself enough that I don't avail myself of salvation, Uh you know,
0: that's a problem
1: that needs to be addressed, you know. And
0: and yet the the paradox of that Mm -hmm. in faith is really remarkable Mm -hmm. too, because it's precisely at the moment when you don't feel worthy that you are most in touch with God's grace and and the the, the sense of, uh, okay, this is... This is now when I realize I need to depend upon someone else. I mm-hmm. need to depend upon God. So. And that's
1: so hard for people. I yeah. saw it with my grandmother. She lived with yeah. my parents where she died. And the most... when Here she is at the end of her life, 93 years of age, and the thing that upset her the most... Mm-hmm was well, she would say, you know, I, I don't know why I'm still here. I'm not of use to anyone. Ah, uh, of and use. We, we, we would say, you know, use. Grandma, you know, yeah. you've, you've spent your whole life serving other people. Let us take care right. of let it, but, she, but I'm not useful. Right. And this idea, and then it hit me, you know, that one of the most fundamental things mm. of a human being is to feel utility. Yeah, yeah. And, and so how can I be of use mm-hmm. if you would, answer that then you found the
0: key to the door of heaven you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well you i think most people who just listen to you on uh the, the morning show probably would be uh amazed at this kind of a conversation. Now you guys talk about religion and church and faith in right. some now and then. Uh, and But you know, normally it's a, a jab here or there. <laughs> right. uh, but here's a format both in your writing and in these kinds of conversations that really opens uh, a window to your soul and I think communicates an awful lot to other people as well. Uh, Somehow, Gordon, you have retained an awful lot of how you grew up, whether consciously or unconsciously. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. the thing I thought I was rebelling against becomes the thing that actually has grown and sprouted so many uh, wings inside of me. You know right. that, 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 yeah. because religion and philosophy are these passions of mine, and the reason they are is because I'm a human being, right. and I think we all have that hunger for meaning, and yeah. and I think that I think the world would do well to return back to an idea of the old idea that that, um, that religion can provide meaning over here in the West. Yeah, I, I would love yeah. to see us move back towards that and a little mm-hmm. bit away from uh, this idea that we're gonna try to satisfy spiritual conditions with um, tools of materialism or exactly. tools of, of uh,
0: accomplishment. You know, that reminds me of the, the time we were visiting in my study, uh, for the article you were doing on uh following the ebola crisis and uh we were we were sitting in this a study that is very unlike the environment yeah. we're in right here you referred to it as kind of a funeral home uh, funeral parlor kind of yeah. place <laughs> and we had uh we had water on, Waters, the, yeah. on the thing there mm-hmm. you know and some tissue for people's tears and this is sort of a pastor's office right right but so we were, we're going on in this conversation and you're uh, talking in this article and 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 actually, you you come to the end of of the piece, and and uh, and you say um, how you, you resisted uh, drinking any of that water because you didn't really want to give into that funeral mm-hmm. parlor sort of uh, environment and all of that. But as you as you walked out, uh, the, you ended the piece by saying it it made me want to go find my childhood Bible and open it up to John four fourteen done, over. And now the reader is sitting there thinking, and I got to be honest, I was too, even though I'm supposed to memorize the whole Bible, (laughs) you know, I had to go look it up. And I knew the story. And it's Jesus, of course, with the Samaritan woman at the well. uh, And Jesus is saying, uh, the water I give you to drink uh, is eternal water, water for eternal life, and will make you never thirst again. Right. And I think Gordon... That's the water. (laughs) I'll finally
1: drink with you on this, yes. That's the water we're
0: talking about. (laughs) That's right. And uh, God bless you for all you do and for the meaning that this conversation has made uh, in this day. Appreciate you. Thank you, George, as always. Okay, terrific. Anytime. Okay, bye-bye.